Well, good evening to you. It's wonderful to be together tonight. I was glad to see the rain this morning and glad to, glad to see that it quit in the afternoon. I didn't care much getting wet. <laughs> but uh, tonight we're going to look at something that is just a part of, uh, of what the prophets did. And that is they spoke for God and they didn't always speak in a way that was politically correct or polite. And that comes in Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, and you can be turning there. Uh, there were times when the prophets were flat out offensive to their listeners. And the second sermon Amos gave carried barbs that would have stung the egos of the people of Israel. And as we study in Amos chapter 4 tonight, we're going to learn from Israel's mistakes. We're going to see the flaws in their character. And we're going to examine our own in an effort to cleanse our lives from any sinful way that might exist. And so let's look, starting in Amos chapter 4, and I want to read the first three verses with you. Amos chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. He says, Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, Bring now that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by His holiness Behold, the days are coming upon you when they will take you away with meat hooks and the last of you with fish hooks. You will go out through breaches in the walls, each one straight before her, and you will be cast to Harmon, declares the Lord. I was always instructed to avoid bovine imagery when addressing a lady. That never was told to me that that would go well. And that's just as offensive then as it is today. You'll notice a couple of times you've got the identifiers of gender here. You have uh, the uh, wives saying to their husbands, bring now that we may drink in the end of verse 1. And then, of course, in the, uh, in the, end of ver- or in the middle of verse 3, each one straight before her. And so the idea is that Amos is addressing the ruling class of Israel and and the ruling women especially, those who were married to the powerful men sitting on the mountain of Samaria. That would be the capital of that northern kingdom. And so he's addressing them as cows of Bashan. Bashan was known particularly for its fat cows that would graze on the land and be very hardy. And that's found not just here, but also in places like uh, Ezekiel chapter 39, verse 18, if you want to write it down. And so you can find this imagery elsewhere, but but here Amos is doing something particular with it. And it's something that it is insulting, but it's intended to do far more than insult. It's intended to grab ears and force them to listen. Listen. You know, there's nothing quite like being insulted to the point that you just can't help but turn your head and say, hey, wait a minute, what did you just say? You know, it's the old, your jokes about your mother and the guy who says something about her and you say, what did you say? Shock value is what we're dealing with here. And so he's got these, these women and he's reprimanding them on account of their way of life. They sit or stand all day doing nothing but waiting for their husbands whom they view as slaves to bring them something home so they can get drunk. 
And more than that, these are women who fattened themselves while depriving the needy who were suffering around them. They were uncaring, domineering, self-indulgent women who failed to meet God's standard for their life, and so He was going to punish them for it. Now there's a whole lot here to talk about as far as the character described. But I want to focus on just one thing. And I think it's what Amos focuses on the most. And that has to do with the way that they're treating those in need as versus the way they're treating themselves. God has never and will never look with favor on those who refuse to care for the needy, especially when we have the means to help and we just cast them aside. You notice in Amos chapter 4 and verse 1, they oppress the poor, they crush the needy. They care nothing for them, trampling them underfoot. Jesus spoke on that very subject in Luke chapter 16. Let's look over there. Read Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. This is a man who might be described as a cow of Bashan because of the way that he chose to live. And it was very much like what's described in Amos chapter 4, verse 1. Luke chapter 16, verse 19 says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Now we realize there's more that goes on in that description that Jesus gives. But don't miss the reason this man ended up in Hades in torment. He failed to care about the man Lazarus who was in need at his doorstep day by day while he fed himself very well and lived luxuriously. The sin was not to live luxuriously or to have the world's goods, but rather to ignore the one who was in need. To care not for him. We ought to live more generously when God blesses us with luxury. There should be a, a, a give and take there, or rather perhaps in our case a take and a give. We take what God gives to us and when that's very luxurious and generous, we ought to be generous to others around us as well. Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 9 talks about a particularly luxurious gift we've been given. Romans 5 verse 6 says, For while we were still helpless, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by His blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through Him. And so we see here a great gift that God has given us, a great sharing that He's done with us through the sacrifice of Christ on our behalf. This is the way God behaved toward those who were in need, toward us. 
And we ought to show the same mercy and compassion because God has. Let's not be like those cows of Bashan, but instead be like our Heavenly Father, caring for those in need. Let's talk more back in Amos chapter 4. Amos chapter 4, verse 4 we'll pick up. And this has to do with the religion of Israel. He's, he's not just focusing on the women in this second sermon he gives, but rather he shifts now to their worship. The worship of the people of Israel. They would go to Bethel, they would go to Gilgal. Look at Amos chapter 4, verse 4. The, uh, he says, Enter Bethel and transgress. In Gilgal, multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a thank offering also from that which is leavened, and proclaim free will offerings. Make them known, for, you, for so you love to do, you sons of Israel, declares the Lord God. Now that might sound very good if you don't pay attention to the sarcasm. You see, this is a sarcastic point that God's making through Amos. There's strong sarcasm here. It's practically dripping. Bethel was a place of worship. So enter Bethel and transgress. Enter Gilgal. Multiply transgressions. Sacrifice every morning. Tithes every three days. Thank offerings. And proclaim free will offerings. Make them known. You understand the idea there that a free will offering ought to be between you and God, perhaps the priest who was there. You didn't need to proclaim it and make it known to everybody around you, but that's what they did. So they loved to do, you sons of Israel. And so the people of Israel were in a habit which has been recurring as a pitfall for many who proclaim faith in God. They would come to worship and they, would, they had a mentality that if they came and they offered sacrifices at worship, then their sins were cleansed. And then they could sin without worrying about it because, well, they're right there in Bethel. They could just go back and sacrifice again the next day. And they go back and forth between this stuff. And so they'd multiply the transgression because, after all, I can just go down the street and make a sacrifice and make it all all right. People still do that today. I still think that way today. Some think that way about the Lord's Supper, you realize. They, they look at it and they say, well, this is the memorial of Christ, yes, but they attach some significance to it and an effect to it that the Bible doesn't. They say, well, by, by eating that bread and, and drinking the, the fruit of the vine, and, well, I'm coming in contact with the blood of Christ and every Sunday whenever I do that and, and take that memorial, well, I'm cleansed of my sins once again. And so as long as I make it to Sunday, I'm all right. As long as I make it to Sunday, it doesn't really matter how I live during the week. As long as I come on Sunday and take that Lord's Supper, well, I'll be just cleansed and free. And some don't even worry about the Lord's Supper. They just treat worship that way. They figure that if they can come to worship on Sunday, well, well I'm close to God then and, and I know He's forgiven me because I've come and shown my loyalty on Sunday. Now, don't, don't miss... Uh, the importance of those things. I'm not saying we shouldn't do those things. But there's a point at which it becomes like a Catholic indulgence. Uh, some history buffs in church history might, might remember an indulgence, or if you're familiar with Catholicism, they would uh, ask you, which sin do you want to commit? How bad of a sin do you want to go and do? And you would say, well, I, I want to go and, and uh, 
I want to, I want to steal this, this little item down the street. And so uh, what does that cost me? And you would pay a certain amount and they'd give you a little piece of paper that says, you're hereby absolved of this sin you're about to commit. It's called an indulgence, right? That's what they call those chocolates you're not supposed to eat. It's an indulgence. And they would sell these things and make lots of money in the process, mind you. May our worship always carry a sincere desire to please the Lord without any ulterior motive. And may our life be characterized by sincere repentance when we sin and by a sincere devotion to Him during the week as well as on Sunday. 1 Corinthians chapter 14 deals with, a, with God's desire and for His design for our gatherings on the first day of the week especially. And it is no less appropriate to seek God's forgiveness today than it is any other day. It's very appropriate every day to seek His forgiveness for sin. But there's a particular reason we come together, and that particular reason is not to absolve ourselves of sin, but rather 1 Corinthians 14 verse 26 says, what's the outcome then, brethren? When you assemble, each one has a psalm, has a teaching, has a revelation, has a tongue, has an interpretation. Let all things be done for edification. That is, let everything be done so that you and your brethren can be built up to be stronger. Stronger in Christ. Stronger spiritually than when you came. That is His design for the heart, the motive of our gatherings together. To make one another stronger. And to make one another stronger by and through our worship to our Father. The worship of the northern kingdom of Israel was disgusting in the eyes of God. And it's our responsibility to make sure that we worship as God has taught us. John 4.24 calls it in spirit and truth. And that way we will be pleasing to the Lord in it. And we'll maintain the spiritual strength and fortitude of our brotherhood. The lifestyle and the worship of Israel during the time of Amos were unacceptable in the eyes of God. And so in Amos chapter 4, the last section of that chapter, Amos 4 verses 6 through 13, we read about the consequences And there's a particular phrase that we need to zero in on. You'll hear it over and over again. But let's read Amos chapter 4, verses 6 through 13. He says, after identifying these sinful ways that they were behaving, verse 6, But I gave you also cleanness of teeth in all your cities and lack of bread in all your places, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Did you catch that? Cleanness of teeth is a, a curse in this case because... They didn't have those little toothbrushes with the little soft bristles on them and the toothpaste to clean their teeth and make them white. If they were eating food, their teeth were dirty. 
And so to have cleanness of teeth in this case is about not having anything to eat. It was a famine. There was no food. And so your teeth were nice and shiny and smooth. But you didn't like it. (laughs) You wish they could be dirty. And so he gave them cleanness of teeth. Lack of bread in all your places. Yet you've not returned to me. If you're going to underline something in, in this section, I would underline every time that you find, yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Because it comes up. Time and time again. Here there was a famine. They were supposed to return to him, but they didn't. Verse 7, furthermore, I withheld the rain from you. That's a drought. We withheld the rain from you while there were still three months until harvest. You know what that's going to do? That's going to kill your crops. That's going to end your harvest. You're not going to have much. Then I would send rain, he says, on one city. And on another city, I would not send rain. One part would be rained on, while the part not rained on would dry up. So two or three cities would stagger to another city to drink water, but would not be satisfied. Yet you have not returned to me, declares the Lord. Again, he's done this drought stuff, and he's made their lives difficult so that they didn't have water and they had to stagger. You know how you get whenever you haven't drunk any water in a long time? You're miserable, lightheaded, your balance is off, you're just weary, and they would stagger in that great thirst from one city to another. And yet never did their minds drift over to the fact that they were disobeying God. Never did they decide, oh, wait a minute, maybe if we served God, He would bless us. Never. You've not returned to me, declares the Lord in the end of verse 8. So verse 9, I smote you with scorching wind and mildew, and the caterpillar was devouring your many gardens and vineyards, fig trees and olive trees, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Verse 10, I sent a plague among you after the manner of Egypt. Now we're getting serious. The ten plagues of Egypt are among the grandest of events in the entire Bible. He sent a plague among them after the manner of Egypt. I slew your young men by the sword along with your captured horses and I made the stench of your camp rise up in your nostrils, yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. You've got to know they're complaining about the smell. But never did it occur to them that maybe they ought to come back to the Lord. Verse 11, I overthrew you as God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. And you were like a firebrand snatched from a blaze. Yet you've not returned to me, declares the Lord. Sodom and Gomorrah? He treated them that way. Therefore, verse 12, thus I will do to you, O Israel... Because I will do this to you, prepare to meet your God, O Israel. For behold, he who forms mountains and creates the wind and declares to man what are his thoughts, he who makes dawn into darkness and treads on the high places of the earth, the Lord God of hosts is his name. If there was any question that God uses the difficulties of this life to wake us up, This passage can set that question at ease. He certainly does. He certainly allows us to go through difficulty and pain and times of trying so that we would look to Him. So that we might return to Him if we've left Him. And so that we might trust in Him if we remain with Him. But here they refused to do that. They remained asleep when He tried to wake them up. And so there was only one thing left for God to do, and that is to come in judgment against them. Prepare to meet your God. 
That's what I underline in my Bible. Yet you did not return to me every time it came up. And then the very last phrase, prepare to meet your God. You've chosen to rebel against Him. You've refused to come back time and time again. And there is absolutely nothing left for God to do to bring them back. He's tried everything. He treated them like Egypt and like Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's not much worse that God could do without completely obliterating them. And so they were going to meet Him. I think a, a couple of proverbs are appropriate here for us to consider as we look at our own life. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12 says, My son... Do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. And Proverbs 15, verse 12. A scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. He will not go to the wise. Those two proverbs have to do with the way we respond in difficult times. And especially when we are being disciplined for wrongdoing against the Lord. We ought to love Him for that. We ought to love Him for the difficult times we experience on earth. We ought to love Him for the trials we have to go through. Because if we choose to hate Him for them, we become Proverbs 15.12's scoffer. A scoffer does not love the one who reproves him. Today, the Lord reproves us through His Word. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16 teaches us that. It's our responsibility to have hearts that are soft enough to be pierced by it as those who were saved on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. But especially concerning our response to the teachings of the Word of God, James, in James chapter 1, verses 19 and 20, writes, This you know, my beloved brethren, but everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. And so in those two verses, we have the way to behave when someone comes reproving, when someone comes correcting with the Scriptures. Your first job is to listen. Second is to spend time with your mouth shut and your mind at peace. Because otherwise, you're going to completely ignore the reproof that comes from God. Listen, shut your mouth, and let your mind be at peace. Because if that reproof is one that is honest with the Scriptures, you need to hear it. And the one who's speaking it to you is the one who loves you. So respond well. That's the path of righteousness, the righteousness of God. And any other leads to death and we should fear to walk it. For one day, there will be no more reproof offered. There will be no more opportunity. And instead, we will meet our God. And if we've chosen to resist Him and to reject His reproof, 
He will be a terrible sight. Don't reject it. Accept the reproof that comes from God. The lifestyle, the worship, the hard-heartedness of Israel, it caused God to come in judgment to them. And we, we must learn to live better and to worship better and to better soften our hearts to the Word of the Lord. Tonight, if you're a Christian who needs to correct your steps, the invitation is for you. And if you're not a Christian, but you believe the message of the Gospel and you're ready to obey the Word of the Lord Jesus, we will hear your confession of Jesus as Lord and will baptize you for the forgiveness of your sins in His name. If you need to respond tonight, the opportunity is open for you. Please come forward as we stand and sing.